This time be with Pastor Frank now as he brings forth your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Are you excited for Jesus Christ, your living hope? Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. As like as uh, Eric said, that we've started our worship time this morning. It may be gloomy outside, but for us to know Jesus Christ, the Son, S-O-N, is shining in our hearts continuously, and we could thank God for that. Amen? Amen. This morning, I want to congratulate uh, Kevin and Tiffany Hare. Uh, Tiffany gave birth to baby Daniel, who was born on Friday, uh, seven pounds, two ounces, 19 and a half inches long. Their family has now been expanded to three children, so we continue to pray for them. Kevin, I mean, uh, Kevin, he's going to need our prayers, uh, but Tiffany and the baby are doing well. Let's continue to lift up that family in prayer. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, if you're, it's your first time here, we have a gift we'd like to give you. It's a little gift bag we have. Uh, see us at the end of the service uh, back in the lobby. Uh, we have a couple books there called, uh, a book called An Anchor for Your Soul and a book called Since Nobody's Perfect, How Good is Good Enough, some church information, and there's a contact card there if you could fill that out and give that to us. We'd like you to get to know us because we're wonderful people, right? No, we, we are. We, we want to get to know people because we love people and we want to show your love and we want to see if we could help in any way you can. If you're visiting with us on Facebook, uh, you could contact us on our website or give us a call if you need us. If you have any questions as well. I just wanted to ask one question this morning before we get started. I think I lost my job last week. Were you all excited about my granddaughter doing the announcements? How do you think she did? Oh, I think she did great. <laughs> I think she did great. Uh, my son said that uh, he thought that she really did a good job. He'd like to see that, that continue. But anyway, uh, Pastor Jason's off this week, and you have me. Uh, he's gone, so they, can, they left me in charge, and anything could happen. We've had different things happen in the past when, that, when he's not, no one's here besides me. So I thought, what do you all want to do? You know, they gave me a, they gave me a, they gave me the, a, a full line of credit, though. What do you want, guys want to do this morning? Just <laughs> But anyway, uh, Pastor Jason's enjoying a time of refreshment with his family, so just keep him in your prayers as well. We're going to continue our series this morning in, in the book of Mark, uh, called the, the series called The Suffering Servant. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Jason talked about how our values should reflect the kingdom. We spoke from Mark chapter 1. Uh, we learned four, uh, four kingdom values. First of all, when God calls, we should follow him. When God calls, we should follow him. Are you, calling, are you answering God's call in your life, and if you've not trusted him, he's calling you for eternal life, for salvation. Our second value was we should be excited about Jesus and share with him with others. Are we excited about Jesus? Amen. All right. Well, if you're excited about him, then as believers, we share the good news, and we should be excited to share that as well. The third value was serving people and sacrifice, and Pastor Jason talked about how Jesus came to serve others. He gave his life as a ransom to many. We saw that in Mark chapter 10. And so we too should serve others and the lost uh, and the church in our, the church as well. And the fourth value was that prayer was essential. Jesus deemed it necessary to pray to his Father, so we should as well. So that, those are the four values. Today we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 2. If you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, we're going to get to there in a few moments. And um, we're going to look at, continue to look at Christ the servant and see what the servant offers all of his humanity, 
all of us. Um, thus, this morning, the title is a message that is entitled, We Are All Human. And in doing so, we're going to see that Jesus' intention uh, was to offer and provide for all of humanity, all his creation, so that they would flourish in this life and the life to come. Uh, they, he wanted them to thrive, uh, to be able to re- uh, realize uh, a goal despite any kind of circumstance. He wants humanity to prosper, to become successful, uh, more so spiritually than uh, materially. So we're, gonna go, we're going to see what the servant, Jesus, offers us so that we can all prosper, we can all flourish and thrive. Uh, we're gonna, in, before we get into the text, I uh, just wanted to look a, l- uh, a little bit more of a back, some more background. Of course, we know Mark is the author, uh, as we discussed last week. And the theme of Mark is really found in our sermon series title, The Suffering Servant. Uh, the opening verse in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, tells us what the book is all about, and that, that is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the only time Mark tells you what he, the author, thinks. The rest of the book, Mark is going to influence you by just, uh, just putting Jesus' actions and words right in front of you. And he's going to show you how other people react to him. In Mark 10, verse 45, we saw that they see the two-part purpose of the Gospel of Mark. And Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The two-part purpose here. First of all, we see the service of the servant. We see Jesus' ministry, and, uh, teaching, and healing in the first part of the book. And we see the second purpose, which is the second part of the purpose, is the sacrifice of the servant and the events surrounding the crucifixion. That's in the second part of the book. Uh, as Matt, Pastor Jason shared last week, Mark was written to a Gentile audience uh, in general and specifically to the, the Roman readers. And uh, that's why there's not as many references to the Old Testament in Mark's uh, gospel as there are in Matthew and Luke. As a matter of fact, there's half the many references as there are in the other two gospels. Uh, because the Romans might not be interested in some of the Old Testament things, the, Mo- the Roman mind was interested in power. And Mark, of course, jumps right into Jesus' miraculous ministry. And the Roman mind would be far more impressed with what Jesus did and less than what he said. The Gospel of Mark emphasizes the superhuman power of Jesus. Christ is presented as God's Son in action, demonstrating his divine, uh, his divinity, excuse me, demonstrating his divinity by his miracles. Then Mark could argue from Christ's miracles to his deity and then to his greatest miracle uh, and display of power that the world has ever seen, and that's his death and resurrection. As we discussed last week, it's a book of action. Uh, The Greek word that's uh, translated at once or immediately is used 42 times in this book. Uh, Jesus, as I said, is seen as a man of activity, a man who gets things done. And after Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' core message. He went about Galilee announcing the great news of God's kingdom has come near. He's carrying forward the story of the Old Testament scriptures about God's rescue operation for his world, and that produces some responses uh, of, of different kinds. Some people follow him and become his disciples. Others don't know what to think, and still others reject him completely, especially Israel's leaders. 
who were looking to accuse him of blasphemy and being empowered by evil. And we'll see that Jesus is never res uh, surprised by these responses. So we're going to jump into Mark chapter 2. We find Jesus back in Capernaum. Uh, he's at a home there. We don't know if it's his. It may be Peter's from an uh, earlier verse uh, that, that we find that the news had spreaded quickly about him. And wherever he went, he was drawing a large crowd. And he drew a large crowd here. They wanted to see the things that he'd done. They wanted to see some of his miracles of healing the sick and casting out demons. And uh, people, of course, they were more interested in this than always looking at the looking to see the good news of the gospel. And that's really no different than today. Uh, people sometimes looking to Jesus for a quick fix instead of looking for what he really can offer, eternal life and security. Uh, but Jesus knew their shallow thinking and their needs, and as I said, he came to provide so much for humanity. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to be the, uh, the he sent the world that uh, they should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent, the, he sent Jesus for all of humanity. So this message is titled, We Are All Humans, We Are All Whosoever's, uh, according to John 3.16. And we're going to see what Jesus, the servant, offers us. We're going to see that there's three things that Jesus offers his humanity. The first thing we see is Jesus, offers the, Jesus the servant, offers humanity forgiveness. Let's look at Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard what, that he was, at one, he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no longer room, near, even near the roof, door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet in which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, immediately aware of in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive, and forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out to, in the sight of all. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. We're not sure, as I said, where Jesus was. He, was, he might have been in his house or in Peter's, but we see that a crowd had followed him. They, they showed up there and... Uh, in a, a commentary I read, it says, this hospitality is one of the basic laws of the East. The people of the Capernaum did not wait for an invitation, but simply came to the house in droves. It was a Jewish custom. Many uninvited people were crowded into houses, and, around, and, and, they, and they surrounded the doors. They prevented access from these three people. That was just a custom in Jewish homes. It's a custom in my home. My wife's Jewish, and your, the house is always open. You're all invited at any time, right, hon? Right, okay. So, anytime. That, that was a Jewish custom. So we found all these folks here. And what was Jesus doing? He was speaking the word uh, to them. Now, what, what we find here is with these, these uh, four men bringing their friend, there was evidently other truly needy people that were there, and they couldn't get close enough to Jesus. But these four men found the solution. We, this is a familiar scene in verses 3 and 4 where we see his friends 
lowering the paralyzed man through the roof. Now, the houses in Jesus' day, the roofs were constructed a little bit differently. The houses were differently than ours. They had a they had an inner courtyard in their homes, and, and the, the rooms were built around the courtyard. And then there was a roofs that were made of, uh, of, of some kind of a plaster that was constructed of uh, sticks and thorn bush and mortar and earth. Uh, and there was a, a stairway on the outside of the home that went to either there was upper stories or the roof that got access to that. And the roof was usually, it was actually broken in pieces, as it says here. They dug an opening, it was broken in pieces, and they set the pieces aside until the uh, opening was large enough to lower this man down. And that was not uncommon in that day. It was very common that they would uh, break the roofs down and repair them later because they had to lower other items down that was necessary to live, whether it be feed or grain or those kinds of things. So this was not uncommon. But what we see here as we examine the qualities of the poor men, we see something interesting. Now, Pete, we don't, we, back in chapter 1, Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I'm not sure if these four men heard Jesus say that himself, but I'm thinking that somewhere along the line, they must have, they must have heard it. They certainly understood it, and they were now certainly practicing it. They exhibited a passion and drive to bring someone to Christ. And I think, shouldn't that be the same passion and drive that we ha should have today? They were deeply concerned for their friend. They had faith to believe that Jesus could and meet, would meet their friend's needs. Don't you today have faith in Jesus? Don't we all believe that Jesus is God and he could do anything he can? Simply, he, and he, they, these folks didn't simply pray about it. They put feet to their prayers, literally put feet to their prayers. They carried this guy up and lowered him down. They never gave up did not allow difficult circumstance to dissuade them. They worked together to bring their friend to Jesus. They did not give up. They did not say, well, there's no sense in trying. It's just too crowded. Maybe we'll just see if we could come back another time. No, they, they, they were persistent. How about you? How about me? Are you allowing Jesus to make you become a fisher of men? Do you have the same drive and compassion to bring people to Christ? Are you concerned for your lost friends and family like these guys were? Are you putting feet to your prayers? I know many of us pray for our, our, our lost neighbors and friends, but are we, are we doing something about it? Are we taking action? Unlike these men, are we doing all you can to bring your lost friends and family to Christ? Are you working together with other brothers and sisters toward that, towards that end. We see the, the reward, that Je the, how Jesus rewarded these, this, these men's faith in verse 5. He heals this paralytic, and he forgives him of his sins. Forgiveness, that's what I said. That was the first gift that the Savior, the suffering servant, offers to his humanity. It's the first gift. And when Jesus saw this paralyzed man laying on the mat, he realized this man had another problem. The real problem that he and every human being has is called sin. Romans 3.23, we're all familiar with that verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All humanity, each and every one of us, is born into this world stricken with that disease. 
and all humanity is incapable of themselves to provide a cure. And we see many things in our world, many diseases being healed. We see vaccines, we see treatments, we see all kinds of medical discoveries, but this is a disease that no one could heal except Jesus, the suffering servant. He alone has the authority to forgive. Why? Because as it says in verses 8 through 12, he is God. Look at verse 8. He proves that he is omniscient. He knew their thoughts. Only God can know that. In verses 10 through 12, we see that he is omnipotent. He supernaturally heals this man. The, the miracle proves who he is, and because of that miracle, we know that he has the authority to do whatever that is, including healing, uh, forgiving sin. In verse 10, Jesus claimed deity when he used the title Son of Man, and the Jewish leaders, they understood that, that title. In, Matthew, in Daniel chapter 7, we, you don't have to turn there, but it says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. <clears throat> I'm sure the, the scribes and the Pharisees knew that scripture and what Jesus was claiming. And Jesus is God, and because he's God, he is the only acceptable and final sacrifice for our sin, the suffering servant. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He, God, that is, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus took our sin upon him. He took our punishment. He took our penalty. And in exchange, when we put our trust in him and what he's done for us, we receive God's righteousness. We, we become born again. We, we gain eternal life, one that will never end in heaven with God for eternity. It's called the great exchange. Jesus' sin is placed on, our sin is placed on Jesus. He takes our penalty, our punishment, and in return, we get his righteousness. So according to that verse, he paid a debt that he did not owe to give us a gift to cancel a debt that we could not pay. Warren Rearsby writes this in the Bible Exposition Commentary. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Jesus, the suffering servant, has the authority to forgive sin because of his sacrifice, and as a result, one can receive that forgiveness when you put your trust in the suffering servant. It's the main reason Jesus came, to provide forgiveness based on the gospel. We read, that, we read in Mark chapter 1 that he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. How about you that are sitting here this morning? Have you received the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide? Have you put your faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Because you see, as I said before, each one of us is born in this world stricken with the disease of sin, or sin. That's just who we are. And because of that, we are separated from a holy God 
spiritually. And because of sin, we're going to die physically. And if we die physically without being healed physically, we'll be separated from God for eternity. Jesus came. That's the problem we have. And Jesus came. He died on the cross, as I said, for those sins, so that in him we put our faith and trust in him and what he's done. We gain God's forgiveness. God will never bring up our sins again to us. We gain eternal life. And we do that when we put our faith, only by putting our faith by God's grace in Jesus Christ, our total and explicit confidence and trust in Jesus and what he has done. If you've not done that in your life, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, if you want to receive the gift of forgiveness that only Jesus can provide, don't leave this place today without receiving that. Talk to the friend who brought you. Talk to me. Talk to one of our deacons. We'd love to share that with you. But before we move on, I want to look at the response of the scribes in this passage. Uh, as, we sh- as we learn, they were men who would teach and explain the Old Testament law. They knew it inside and out. In a parallel passage to this account in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, it says that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee and Judea to see uh, and Jerusalem. These were the religious leaders, men that, that were given the responsibility to check out Jesus. Well, more, more than likely, they were, they were there to spy on him. And according to this, they, they may have been here early because they had a, it seems like they had a front row seat. But as I said, they were responsible for the religious life of the Jewish nation, and they were there to check out this new teacher. And unfortunately, they did not come with open minds and open hearts. But they came with a negative spirit and a critical mind. Don't we as believers sometimes approach this matter of forgiveness like the scribes? Don't we come with a critical spirit and a wrong attitude? I forgive you, but you know, what about this? Or, uh, please forgive me, but you know, you did this. You know, true forgiveness is an act of compassion. It's a sympathetic concern for others who, and their distress and a desire to help alleviate it. Forgiveness cancels a debt. What did Jesus say in 9.13? It says, he, not, excuse me, John chapter 19, verse 30. He says, it is finished. Debt paid in full. If he forgave us, who were we not to forgive? Forgiveness is a threefold promise. It's a promise that I will not bring up the offense again or use it against you. It is a promise not to bring it up to others in gossip or to malign the person that we're talking about. It's a promise that I will not bring it up to myself and dwell on the offense. And a forgiveness, and forgiveness is an event and a process. It's an event and a process. It's not a one-time thing. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive, Lord? Seven times? What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven, over and over. We need to continually release that person of that debt. Are you doing that with, in your life? Question you have to ask. Back to the scribes. Uh, they, as I said, they came with this negative attitude and a critical spirit. 
They were looking for some way to accuse Jesus of, of heresy, but we saw as Jesus being in the omniscient, he knew their minds. And what does he say in verse 8? Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Since they wanted to reason about things, he gave them something to reason about. He asked them, which is easier, to heal someone or to tell them they're forgiven? Well, obviously, it's easy to say they're forgiven. No one can prove that. You can't see it physically. But to prove that he had the power to forgive, the authority to forgive, what did he do? He healed this man, told him to pick up his pallet and walk, and everyone was amazed. What do you think? What what to think if the scribes and the religious leaders had truly opened their hearts to the truth? They would have learned that sin is like a sickness and forgiveness is like having your health restored. And they should have known that from the Old Testament scriptures. These were scribes. They knew the Old Testament scriptures in and out. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, whelps, and raw wounds, not, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. That's a picture in the Old Testament of what sin looked like. They would have learned that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior with the authority to forgive, and their sins could have been forgiven. What a missed opportunity. They came with the wrong spirit and the wrong attitude, and they could have responded to Jesus. Please, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, don't respond like the scribes did. Repent and open your heart to Him. If you know Jesus as your Savior today, don't have the same attitude and negative spirit in this matter of forgiveness. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the first gift that God, the suffering servant gives to humanity is forgiveness. The second gift that, gift that the suffering servant gives to humanity is fulfillment. Let's read verses 14, uh, 13 through 22. And he went out again, Excuse me. Yeah, and he went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came about that he, when he was reclining at the table at his house, and many ga- tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do, Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And he said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will, have fat, they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The old from the new and, and worst hair results. And no one puts new wine, skins, no wine into old wineskins other, 
otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Here we see at the beginning of this passage the calling of Levi, who is called Matthew. Uh, he came to become a follower of Jesus, and like the other disciples where they were called in, uh, in chapter 1, he rose and followed them. Uh, this was immediate. No questions asked. He, and he, he just go, got up, didn't concern. You know, he probably lost his job with Rome. Uh, he burnt his bridges, so to speak. And it says uh, in the parallel account in Luke that he left everything behind. And he received a new name, like we said, Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh. And in reality, when we trust Jesus as our Savior, we leave things behind and we gain so much more in him. And Matthew, we see Levi, who was a Jew, who he, his job was he collected uh, taxes, most likely for profit, from the Romans, uh, for the, uh, excuse me, for, from the Jews, for the Romans. And because of that, they were notoriously corrupt, and therefore they were hated by their fellow Jews. Um, and here we have Jesus with these folks, as well as other sinners uh, that were there around him. He was there eating with them. And, we put, and in, in that culture, when one had a meal, that was a, a sign of intimate time and fellowship with one another. And the Pharisees were questioning, how could he eat with these kinds of people? You know, these people can, in the Jewish mind, the, the, in the Pharisaical mind, they were what we would call the dregs of society. Or, as Hillary Clinton said in 2016 election, they were the undesirables. So what does this new follower of Jesus do? He invites all his friends to meet Jesus. Can you remember the first time when, the, when you trusted Jesus as your Savior, when you were new in, in the faith, how you invited all your friends, everyone you can, to come and meet him? I don't know why that changes as we grow older. But are you doing that? Are you still inviting your friends to meet Jesus? We find Jesus quickly, we find Jesus associating with these undesirables, the Jewish society, the tax gatherers and the sinners. And we see there were many with them, verse 15. And they were following him. Now why were they many following him? Why were they there with him? Why were they excited to be with Jesus? I think it was because they knew that to them, they were, may have been unvaluable to society, but to Jesus, they were valuable. They may have been unloved, by the rest of society, but Jesus loved them. And the rest of society may not have cared for them, but Jesus did. We're supposed to be like Christ. You make it a point, like Christ did, to intentionally spend time with sinners? Do your lost friends know that they are valuable to you? That you love them? That, they're con that you're concerned for them? I hope that they do. But here again we find Jesus' critics, the scribes, the teachers of the Old Testament law, and they're asking, why are you eating with these people? How can he associate with them, these sinners? And in the, in the, in the Pharisaical mind, that term was for the uncommon, untrained people in the law who did not maintain their rigid and legalistic standards. In other words, they were not good enough to associate with the Pharisees devoted to the, they were devoted to the Mosaic law and even more so to the oral traditions that were added to it. And they strictly regulated their lives and they expected others to do so. 
But Jesus answers this question uh, to teach them something about himself and what he came to do with three illustrations. In verse 17, uh, it says that he, Jesus likens himself to the physician. Uh, Jesus did not consider these people undesirable or rejects. He saw Matthew's friends as sick in need of physicians, a physician that would prescribe a cure. We all know Jesus is the great physician. And we saw back in, in Isaiah chapter 1 that sin is compared to a sickness and forgiveness is the only cure that, Jesus, that only Jesus can provide. We, see there's, we know that there's three kinds of patients, though, that Jesus cannot heal of their sin sickness. Those who do not know him, if you don't know him, he wants to cure you of that sickness. There's those who know about him but refuse to trust him. And like the Pharisees here, those who will not ad admit that they need him, that they're, they're righteousness or self-righteous individuals who think they could obtain salvation or they could obtain a relationship with God on their own merits. And that's like anyone else today that we meet. We find those people in those three categories. And we find people who are self-righteous, see themselves as the Pharisees did. Unless one admits he is sick, unless one he admits he's a sinner deserving of God's punishment, there is no cure. And that is why Jesus came and he ate with sinners. Do you look at the lost like the Pharisees, those people? Or do you look at them like Christ does, stricken with the deadly sin, sickness of sin? You know, um, we have many sinners come into this church every week, hundreds of sinners. Hundreds of people from our community who are not like us. They're different. Come from different parts of the community, different backgrounds. But you what? We all you want you know what? They're all people that are stricken with this deadly disease of sickness and they need the healing power of Jesus. And we have the cure. There are people in our they aren't they don't look like us. Uh, Pastor Jason's been asking on Tuesday nights to get people that we are, to come and help. Yeah, they don't have enough help. We should be there offering the love of Jesus, meeting these people, showing them the, that we care and love. And many times we are not any different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. We have the cure. Jesus came to provide the complete and final cure, folks. The second illustration we see is the bridegroom in verses 18 through 20. The question here is why was Jesus having such a good time with these people? His answer is that he came to bring gladness, not sadness. It was a wedding, not a funeral. Judaism became a religion which people were weighed down by rules and regulations that were impossible to obey. In effect, Jesus was saying God wants life to be like a wedding feast. Jesus is the bridegroom and people are the guests and, and are not wedding guests to have a good time. While he was with them, they were to celebrate their time together. And to the Jews, new, uh, the Jews' new marriage was a picture in the Old Testament that God used to help explain Israel's relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 45, 54, verse 5 says, Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And he also, God also used that in the Old Testament, this picture of spiritual marriage. Is set to, he said, when, when the nation turned from God, uh, to, they turned to foreign gods, 
they were committing uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word off the top of my head, but they were committing spiritual adultery. If in, verse, in Jeremiah 31, verse 32, it says, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In the New, Te- in the New Testament, we see marriage is a picture of salvation when a, co- a sinner commits his life to Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and it shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The believer immediately enters into the joys of this spiritual marriage relationship. Just as one is joined supernaturally to another person when they're married, supernaturally we're joined to Christ at the moment of salvation, and that, that, that relationship never ends. One commentator wrote this, wrote this, When you are married to Christ, life becomes like a wedding feast in spite of trials and difficulties. Jesus said it it better in in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, and they may have it abundantly. That life he's talking about is eternal life. And it's just not, it begins at the moment of salvation, and it's just not spending eternity in heaven. It begins the moment we trust Jesus Christ and the Savior, and it's a different quality of life that we can enjoy now. And Jesus said he wanted it to be abundant. And abundant, that word means pertaining to a quantity so great as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. It's overflowing. And Jesus came so we could have that life. Jesus came not only to fulfill the law, but so he came so we could have a fulfilling and abundant life question for you this morning. Are you enjoying that spirit-filled, abundant, fulfilling life that Jesus came to provide? If not, why not? And if not, you can have that by pursuing this relationship with him. The third illustration that Jesus uses is the garment and the wineskins in verses 21 through 22. Jesus' presence with the people was a time of newness, of fulfillment. And it was signaled the passing of the old, the new to the old. He came to fulfill the law, to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. In Matthew 5, verse 18, he says, Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He came to introduce the new, not to patch the old. It would be like tearing patches from a new unshrunk garment and sewing them on an old garment. I should know that. I used to sew. When an old garment was washed, the patches would shrink, rip away, and ruin the garment. Or it would be like putting new, unfermented wine in old, brittle wineskins. As soon as it ferments, the old skins would burst, and you lose both wine and wineskins. Warren Wearsby writes this in the Bible Exposition Commentary. Salvation is not a patching up of one's life. It's a whole new robe of righteousness. And the Christian life is not a mixing of the old with the new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So life in Christ is, is a fulfillment of the old in the new. Jesus, the servant, offers humanity fulfillment by providing the pure 
by providing eternal life and providing an abundant life. In Jesus, we have all, we have fulfillment in all that God has promised for us. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, the ESV says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter the word, Amen, to God for his glory. So the first gift we see that, that the servant offers humanity is forgiveness. The second gift we see that the servant offers humanity is fulfillment. And the third gift that this servant offers us, offers humanity, is freedom. Let's look at verses 23 in chapter 2 to verse 6 in chapter 3. And it came about that as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he came to them, Have you ever heard, have you never read what David did when he was in that need and became hungry, and he and his companions? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he gave it also to those who were with him. As he was saying to them, the Sabbath was, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And as he entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that he might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Excuse me. Here we see two instances that religious leaders saw Jesus as openly violating the traditions of the Sabbath. God gave, uh, excuse me, the, sab the Sabbath was sacred to the Jews, especially to the religious leaders. And we know that God gave Israel the Sabbath after they came out of slavery in Egypt. We see that in Exodus chapter 20. It was a special sign between Israel and Jehovah to rest and be able to thank the Lord. We read in uh, this that it says, Remember the Sabbath. Uh, this is Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. The Jewish traditions said there were 39 acts that were strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. Work was prohibited, prohibited as we just saw from Exodus chapter 20. The Sabbath, however, became a crushing and, bur crushing and burden and religious bondage to the Jews. Jewish tradition even told people how far they could travel on the Sabbath. The law did permit people especially needed to pluck ears in a neighbor's field of, of standing grain as long as one did that, did not use a sickle. And this is on the Sabbath. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 23. They were permitted to, uh, to, to pluck the ears of the grain field as long as they didn't use a tool. However, that's not what upset the Pharisees. In, the, in the par this parallel passage in Luke, it says his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. 
Thomas and Gundry in Harmony of the Gospel says this, picking and rubbing were according to rabbinic tradition catamount to reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. Thus, they were labeled as Sabbath breakers. That's why the Pharisees classified this as harvesting, which they saw as a violation of the Sabbath, and that comes from their oral tradition. They were more concerned with the letter of the law and not the spirit of law. And we see Jesus said that, uh, uh, talking about David, about his companions were in need. He's talking about a passage in, in the Old Testament when David was fleeing Saul in 2 uh, Samuel 21. And David entered the temple and he asked the priest if he could have the bread for his men who were hungry. And that was, actually that bread was restricted to the, supposed to be restricted to the priest. And uh, he gave it to them, the priest gave it to them and eat. And God did not condemn that action. All right? God did not condemn that action. Uh, and Jesus uses this to show that, and to show that the, va- na- the Pharisees had a narrow interpretation of the, of the law that blurred God's intention. You see, disciples didn't violate a Sabbath law or an Old Testament law. They violated a man-made tradition. The spirit of the law in respect to human need took priority over its ceremonial regulations. Let me read that again. The spirit of the law, in respect to human need, took priority over its ceremonial regulations. God is more concerned with meeting the needs of people than with protecting religious traditions. Did you hear that? God is more concerned with meeting the needs of people than with with protecting traditions. On another Sabbath day, Jesus went to the synagogue to worship, and there was a man with a physical handicap, a withered hand. The Pharisees again were watching him, looking for a reason to, to condemn him. And of course, Jesus being omniscient, he knew their, he knew their uh, what's going on in their hearts and minds. Uh, they permitted healing on the Sabbath only if, they permitted healing on the Sabbath only if it was a life-threatening ins- instance. And, the, man, and the, the man's problem was not life-threatening, and it could, it could have waited till the next day so Jesus, uh, if, he could have, if he healed them, they were looking to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. But then Jesus asked him this question. He backs him into a corner. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life, save a life or kill? Which action, act, action was really consistent with the purpose of the Sabbath and the Mosaic Law? The answer is obvious. It was to save a life, to do good. So what does he do in front of everyone? He asks the man to stand up and looking the Pharisees right in the eye, what does he say? Stretch out your hand. Jesus did not use any visible means that might be construed as a work. He was Lord of the Sabbath, and he, Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, he freed it from its legal encumbrances and in grace deli- delivered this man. He wants to, again, prove He has authority over all. He has the authority and power to heal, the power to forgive. He is Lord of all, even the Sabbath. And they were, Pharisees were so angry, what did they do? They stormed up and they hooked up with the Herodians. The Herodians were a, not a, they were a political party, not a religious sect, and they were, they were supported Herod. And the Pharisees and the scribes hated both of them, and yet they, they, got got together with them in order to find some way to destroy Jesus. 
Again, here we see the spirit of the law in respect to human need takes priority over its ceremonial regulations. Again, God is more concerned with meeting the needs of people than with protecting religious traditions. How about us today? Are we more concerned with keeping the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law? Sometimes we get more concerned over our traditions, how we look, how we dress, what kind of music. Is there a choir? Is there a praise band? The list can go on and on. Some of those, my, my brothers and sisters, are not from the scriptures. They're man-made traditions. You know, we live in a different world. Things have changed dramatically over the last couple years. It's a different world, and we have to realize that. We have to use different ways and means of, of getting people the gospel. We're not compromising God's word. We're not trying to conform to the world. We're not trying to make ourselves attractive, as there's some ministries that do. But we want to be relatable, don't we? We want to get this gospel message, this cure that the world needs to a lost and dying world. My friends, we can't be caught up in tradition. Paul addressed this issue in Galatians. In chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, he wrote, writes this, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may, we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. A tutor, an ESV calls it a guardian. It was usually a slave who escorted children to school. They were given the responsibility of those children. They were disciplinarians. And they were charged with guarding the children from the evils of society and giving them moral training. The Bible Knowledge Com Commentary writes this about this verse, that the law has become our tutor. This was like the law's function until Christ came and people could be justified by faith in him. It is better then to understand that the law did not lead us to Christ, but that it was the discipline until Christ came. Brothers and sisters, the reign of the law has ended and faith in Christ has delivered believers from the protective custody and prison and harsh discipline of the law. Ephesians 2.8.9 For you are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You are saved by God's grace faith in Christ. In Romans 6, verse 14, it, the end of that verse says, you are not under law, but under grace. God has written his law in our hearts the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. We live by the internal laws, we live by the scriptures that God has placed in our hearts, not by external regulations and traditions. In Galatians 5, Paul writes this, verse 13, You are called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Someone told me we are free in Christ, yes, we are, but we are free not to do what we want to do, but we are free to do what we ought to do. Portray this and bring this Savior to a lost and dying world, that people would see it real in our lives. 
we are freed from the encumbrances of the law and traditions of men. So what are our three points of application this morning? Jesus, the suffering servant, offers humanity forgiveness. Jesus came to provide forgiveness for all humanity. If you haven't received that, please do so. Today is the day of salvation. For us, we are to forgive others just as God and Christ forgave us. Forgiveness is an act of compassion. It cancels a debt. It's a threefold promise that I will not bring up the offense again. I will not bring it up to others in gossip, and I will not bring it up to myself and dwell on the offense. And forgiveness is an event and a process. So Jesus, the suffering servant, offers humanity forgiveness. Jesus, the suffering servant, offers humanity fulfillment. He came to fulfill the law and to bring us an abundant life. He came to do that by providing the only cure for sin. And in Jesus, we can have fulfillment of all that God has promised. And thirdly, Jesus, the suffering servant, offers humanity freedom. God is more concerned with meeting our needs, but with the needs of people than protecting religious tradition. Let's live by the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Let's live by faith, by the grace God gives us each and every, to each and every one of us who have trusted Jesus. And let's use our freedom in Christ, not for ourselves, but to serve others out of love. Let's enjoy all that Christ, the suffering servant, offers us as believers in Jesus Christ today. Forgiveness, fulfillment, and freedom. And let's share all that he offers with a world that so desperately, desperately needs it. Father, we do thank you for your words today. Father, we thank you that you offer us forgiveness. Father, we thank you that you offer us fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Father, that our world is looking for fulfillment. They're looking for satisfaction and significance. And we know that, Father, the world will fail them miserably. Father, people will never find satisfaction and fulfillment in the world. Father, because you created us to find our significance, to have satisfaction, to find our purpose in and only you, and that's through Jesus Christ. Father, we, we pray that we would take that message to a lost and dying world. Father, we thank you that you provide freedom. Father, we are free in Christ not to live as we want, but to live with him as our new master. Not the, not the traditions, not the law, Father. And we pray that we would use that freedom to do what you've called us to do, and that share the gospel of the lost and dying world. Thank you for our time together today, Father. May we go out today, Father, knowing the grace, being thankful for the grace and mercy you've shown in our life, and may we show that to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming this morning. Have a great afternoon.